Hello everybody, it's James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast. And today we're going to answer an important question that I've answered a bunch of times. We're going to answer it again. Does critical race theory continue the civil rights movement of the 1960s? They like to say that they do. Let me tell you, spoiler alert, no, they do not. In fact, they explicitly reject the approach. It's the most galling and egregious no, it's not actually the most. They're, everything they do is galling and egregious, and there's some much more galling and egregious. It's a very galling and egregious, maybe it is close to the most, though, uh, thing that they do to claim the mantle of the civil rights movement. So if you haven't seen, let's start with the civil rights movement. If you haven't seen, you need to go to the to your favorite search engine, and you need to type in civil rights movement, probably put that in quotes, and then I am a man. And probably put that in quotes. Okay? Civil rights movement, I am a man. I am a man is what black men held on their placards, on their signs, as they marched in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Do you pick up what I'm laying down here? Are you picking that up? Do you understand what I'm saying? I am a man. Not I am a not I am a black man, not I am an identity category. I am not an identity category to be treated as an identity category. That's what the civil rights movement was about. That these people invoke the civil rights heroes, that these people invoke Frederick Douglass, who appealed to the common humanity that that, that the founding documents of this United States, uh, these United States, I suppose, um, enshrined in its in its very beginning and then worked painfully to live up to against much internal resistance that these people invoke those voices on their behalf when they explicitly reject that is just utterly disgusting it's galling and people don't understand it they position themselves as the new civil rights heroes of the world so let's just dig right in and read some of their stuff. I am a man, right? Like compare I am a man to some other stuff in their literature. Let's take a look. Um, we can start uh, with with the um, book Critical Race Theory and Introduction, third edition by Richard Delgado and his partner Gene Stefanczyk. Pages two and three, what is critical race theory? The critical race theory, CRT movement, so let's pause for a second on that. Theory, movement. Theory, movement. No. Theories are not movements. Movements are things activists do to change the world. Theory is an attempt to explain phenomena. Do you see the problem here? First, this is the first part of the book. This is the first real paragraph of the book. Pages two and three. The critical race theory CRT movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. So power is cooked right in there. That's great. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective. Broader equals different, but we'll, I digress. 
places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, group and self-interest, and even feelings in the unconscious. Then they write, unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, equality. They question that in a civil rights movement. Legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. That's not an endorsement of the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s. It says, in fact, unlike those, right? Unlike those. So this is a completely different project. This is a completely different project. We already see that from like the very beginning of uh, this passage. Unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step project uh, progress, the movement considers so the CRT movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights. So they're distinguishing themselves from conventional civil rights and traditional approaches to civil rights. So no, they're not continuing that tradition. So this book talks about civil rights a lot. Okay, what else does it say? The the critical race theory. Um, where, does it, where did it start? Well, what was going on? It was started by a man named Derek Bell at Harvard Law, uh, primarily, and his student later, Kimberly Crenshaw, who we'll return to in a moment. Um, what they were complaining about in the 1970s were Derek Bell and his, his, his uh, associates like Alan Freeman and apparently Richard Delgado, who helped write this book that we're looking at at the moment, they were looking that the, the he says, I'll just read it, um, that they realized more or less simultaneously that the heady advances of the civil rights era of the 1960s had stalled and in many respects were being rolled back. Realizing that new theories and strategies were needed to combat the subtler forms of racism that were gaining ground, early writers such as Derek Bell, Alan Freeman, and Richard Delgado put their minds to the task. They were soon joined by others, and the group held its first conference at a convent outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. So what they were seeing was that the so-called heady advances that were instituted in the wake of the civil rights movement in 64, 65, 68, but in particular, just to name the thing, particular public support for affirmative action was starting to lose support. And they were upset by this. They were very upset by this. So this is where it came from. So they were, they were looking and saying, oh, well, whatever happened in the civil rights era got us stuff we wanted, and then now that's being rolled back, right? And so what does it recommend, actually? It recommends a paradigm shift away from those traditional approaches to civil rights, a paradigm shift, a completely different way to, to think about um, civil rights entirely. So they write some crits, which they called themselves for a while. I don't know that they still call themselves crits, but in the 90s they did when this first drafts of this book were written. Some crits, such as Alan Freeman mentioned above, even argue that our system of civil rights law and enforcement uh, ensures that racial progress occurs at just the right slow pace. We're not going to make so-called racial progress on their terms too fast. 
civil rights law makes sure it's just going to creep along at a comfortable pace for white people. That's their argument. So it says too slow would make minorities impatient and risk destabilization and too fast could jeopardize important material and psychic benefits for elite groups. There's your white stuff. There's your whiteness. When the gap between our ideals and practices becomes too great, the system produces a contradicting contradiction closing case that's in quotes so that everyone may see that it is truly fair and just. When social conditions call for a genuine concession, such as affirmative action, the costs of that concession are always placed on minorities in the form of stigma or on working class whites like Alan Back, who saw admission to the University of California at Davis Medical School, these people least able to incur them. Okay, so from there, I said paradigm shift. They sh a few pages later, they're mentioning Thomas Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn wrote a very important volume, uh, Nature of Scientific Revolutions, that describes how, how, um, how scientific theories about the world don't so much, like Einsteinian physics doesn't really replace Newtonian physics. It's a subtler thing. It's a paradigm shift. It's a different way of thinking about the same thing. So Newtonian physics isn't technically wrong, but Einsteinian physics provides a crucial refinement that's more right. And so this paradigm shift in thinking, whether it's from, oh, Earth at the center of the universe to Sun at the center of the solar system and none of it at the center of the universe, this is a paradigm shift in thinking. So Thomas, as Thomas, the postmodern thinkers uh, and activists love to, to dig into Thomas Kuhn because they, they make, they love to use his argument that basically, to misuse his argument, to make the point that science, frankly, doesn't really know what it's talking about, um, and that everything's contingent um, and kind of false. But anyway, here they, they write, as Thomas Kuhn has pointed out, paradigms resist change. It should so the old civil rights paradigm is what we're talking about here. It should come as no surprise then that the criti that critical race theory, which endeavors to change the reigning paradigm of civil rights thought, has sparked stubborn resistance. They're not good at figuring out why people resist what they're up to. But let's let's hear that again. Critical race theory endeavors to change the reigning paradigm of civil rights thought. Does it continue the thought of the 1960s? No. It seeks to change the paradigm because why? Because the existing paradigm is too slow, not radical enough. Um, so at the end of this same chapter, which turns out to be chapter six of this book, they ask a series of questions for the student. Do, do CRT's critics make the mistake of holding the new paradigm of civil rights thought up to the standard of the old one? Pause for a second. They're saying that they have a new paradigm of civil rights thought. Does it continue the work of the 1960s? No. It does something different. And then the next question in this chapter is, is it problematic that before about 1985, most of the civil rights literature and law was written by a small circle of white scholars who mainly cited each other and ignored the small but growing literature written by scholars of color? The small but growing literature written by scholars of color, by the way, is a way of um, saying critical race theorists, particularly uh, Derek Bell, um, without saying critical race theorists. So they explicitly suggest that there are racist motivations 
to resisting a paradigm change that's done by a kind of small cabal of racially motivated white scholars, legal scholars who are, are civil rights lawyers. Um, why? Because the reigning paradigm of civil rights thought they have decided stalled and is too slow. And they wanted a new paradigm. Does the question, let's not lose sight of the question. The question is, does the woke movement, does critical race theory continue the civil rights movement of the 1960s? The answer is no. In fact, it goes on in the conclusion of the book to refer to refer to what it's doing as the new orthodoxy. So a couple of quotes from the conclusion. What is the situation of critical race theory today? In many respects, the movement is thriving. Dynamic new subdisciplines such as lat-crit and queer-crit studies challenge civil rights activists to rethink the ways they conceptualize race and civil rights. Rethinking the way we conceptualize civil rights. It's not the same thing. And it talks about how critical race theory is being taught more and more widely. This should have been a much more alarming thing. Um, people weren't paying attention. Uh, but then they, they, they say, this is page 133. It's in the conclusion. It's near the end of the book. Critical race theory becomes the new civil rights orthodoxy. That's one of their goals. One of the things that they're talking about that could happen where the civil right, or the, the critical race theory movement is going. CRT could become the new civil rights orthodoxy. The voter representation schemes, including cumulative voting described in Chapter 7, put forward by Lanny Guinier and others, could be enacted, ensuring larger numbers of mayors, senators, and other members of co Congress of color. Uh, courts could soften their approach to hate speech regulations, as urged by authors such as Mary Matsuda, Charles Lawrence, and Richard Delgado. A little self-pimping there, again. Perhaps realizing that an increasingly multicultural society cannot tolerate concerted marginalization and browbeating of a substantial segment of its membership. The critique of colorblindness may one day persuade the U.S. Supreme Court to accept race-conscious measures in employment and education. Hello! Hello now! Leveling the playing field for those who have long been excluded from society's benefits. But civil CRT, critical race theory, could become the new civil rights orthodoxy, meaning has to replace an old civil rights orthodoxy. Does it continue the civil rights movement of the 1960s? No, it does not. Uh, further down, they're a little more pessimistic. It probably won't gain that much power. Turns out they were wrong about that. It has all that power and more now. Uh, but a little further down, they write, even if the relatively mild insights of critical race theory, <laughs> relatively mild, this book is, it's hard to read this book once you understand critical race theory and not just crack up all the time. The relatively mild insights of critical race theory, they're ins insanely, insanely radical. Remember at the beginning of this where it was, we questioned the foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment, rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law? Relatively mild insights. Question constitutional law. Question equality. Question rationalism. Question the liberal order at its very foundations. Relatively mild insights of critical race theory are adopted, however. The effort will not have been in vain. If American society, not to mention its intellectual community, seems receptive to thinking, if not acting differently about race, certainly mainstream liberal civil rights law has been generating little excitement nor has it provided much in the way of support for minority communities in great need of it. 
Perhaps if the new outsider scholars and new converts and fellow travelers persist, their work will in time come to seem not so strange or even radical, and change may come to American society, however slowly and painfully. Does critical race theory continue the work of civil rights movement of the 1960s? No. No, it does not. They say it themselves over and over and over. So let's Let's look at Kimberly Crenshaw. That's a student of Derrick Bell I mentioned a minute ago. And remember, again, I am a man. Remember that? I am a man. That was the rallying cry of black men in, and probably Latin men and other so-called, I hate the word, brown men in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Now let's forward to 1991 with Kimberly Crenshaw this Derek Bell's student, the co-founder, along with Derek Bell, as it's credited, of critical race theory. And she writes a very famous paper in 1991 called Mapping the Margins. This is where intersectionality really got its legs. This is actually where postmodern, this is, in a sense, a smoking gun of where postmodernism got injected into critical race theory. So where, where these activists, Kimberly Crenshaw in this case, picked up postmodern theory. I mean, it's a little more complicated story. Other people like Bell Hooks were also writing about it. Obviously, in queer theory, people like Judith Butler imported an entire raft of it that they didn't even understand. But that, uh, post-colonial theory with Edward Said was rooted in Foucault. So, I mean, it was. it's not like it wasn't other places too. But this paper is where critical race theory, as far as we can tell, explicitly decided to settle, the, settle things and say, we're going to use postmodern tools. But we're going to compare just one part against um, I am a man, the rallying cry of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Okay, so Crenshaw, rather close to the end of this long paper, writes, One need only think about the historical subversion of the category black or the current transformation of queer to understand that categorization is not a one-way street. Clearly, there is unequal power, but there is nonetheless some degree of agency that people can and do exert in the politics of naming. So what she's saying is, if you didn't catch what she's saying there, what she's saying is that there's power involved in making the category black. In fact, that's the central claim of, of critical race theory is that white people get to determine what equals black, straight and passing and normal people if you will, people get to determine what is queer. And so there's a power dynamic involved in the naming. That's what she's claiming. That's what she. That's the basis for the argument she's about to make. Remember, we're doing this against the rallying cry of the 1960s civil rights movement, which was, I am a man. Okay, so clearly there's unequal power, Crenshaw writes, but there is nonetheless some degree of agency that people can and do exert in the politics of naming. That's where we left off. And it is important to note that identity continues to be a site of resistance for members of different subordinated groups. We can recognize the distinction between the claims, I am black, and the claim, I am a person who happens to be black. I am black, Crenshaw tells us, takes the socially imposed identity. Remember, white people constructed black to hold black people down. That's the central idea. That's the socially constructed, socially imposed identity as critical race theory sees it. 
I Am Black takes a socially imposed identity and empowers it as an anchor of subject subjectivity. I Am Black becomes not simply a statement of resistance, but also a positive discourse of self-identification, intimately linked to celebratory statements like the black nationalist, black is beautiful. A lot to take in here. This is what she's saying. She's saying that I am black. Remember, I am a man. I am not an identity category. I'm a man. That was the 1960 civil rights movement. Kimberly Crenshaw. Bell Hooks wrote the same stuff ahead of her. Other people wrote similar stuff starting in the, the late 1970s in particular. She had explicitly invokes black nationalism here as the, the motivation. We, the paper's called Mapping the Margins. Black liberationism, of which black nationalism was a part, is one of the two margins she's talking about. Radical feminism is the other. Uh, she says that black women are relegated to the margins of radical feminism because of white women and of black liberationism because of men. That's that's her argument. And it's black nationalism because of men. So here she openly invokes black nationalism. It says that I am black takes a socially imposed identity. White people made us black. White people said we have to be black and they treat us differently because we're black. That's socially imposed identity and we empower it by claiming it as an anchor of subjectivity. In other words, that my subjective experience as a black person matters. That's what she's saying. I am black takes a socially imposed identity and, and empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity. I am black becomes not simply a statement of resistance against that white social order she's assuming into uh, operates behind the entire thing, um, but also a positive discourse of self-identification. So that this is that identity of the, the identity first politics, the thing that the civil rights movement in the 1960s explicitly rejected. Positive discourse of self-identification, intimately linked to celebratory statements like the black nationalist black is beautiful. Then she goes on. I am a person who happens to be black, on the other hand, achieves self-identification by straining for a certain universality. In effect, I am first a person. And for a concomitant dismissal of the imposed category black as contingent, circumstantial, and non-determinant. I am a man. I am not an identity category. Civil rights movement in the 1960s. I am a person who happens to be black, on the other hand, strains for a certain universality by saying, I am first a person, which then dismisses the so-called imposed, category black as less important than human universality. This is a direct refutation of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and this is the single most influential paper in intersectionality. This is the single most influential paper probably in critical race theory. This is a paper that changed the world for the worse. And here's why. Many pieces of this paper, but this paragraph in particular. This is a direct rejection of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So, does critical race theory continue the civil rights work of the movement of the 1960s? No, it does not. It absolutely does not. It absolutely does not. Why does Crenshaw make this? She writes in lots of extra words. There is truth in both characterizations, of course. Yeah, you have to be high-minded and say that. But they function quite differently depending on the political context. 
This, of course, means racial identity politics context. At this point in history, this is 1991. Think about like who had the biggest TV shows, Oprah, Bill Cosby. Um, think about who, who the biggest biggest music stars, the biggest um, Michael Jackson was kind of famous, right? In the, at the end of the 80s and going into the 90s. Um, Michael Jordan, some of the other sports stars. Think of what was going on in the 90s, right? But at this point in history, she writes, a strong case can be made that the most critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups is to occupy and defend a politics of social location, that means identity politics, rather than to vacate it and destroy it. I am a man. I am not an identity category. Treat me like everybody else. That's the, the 1960s civil rights movement. Taking that up by 1991, okay, so 1963 to 1991, something apparently changed to where Crenshaw feels motivated to write, at this point in history, a strong case can be made that the most critical resistance strategy for disempowered groups, which she means herself, is to occupy and defend an identity politics of social location rather than to say something like, I am a man, not an identity category, that would vacate it and destroy it. My point, whether you think Crenshaw's right or wrong, is beside the point. The question, does this continue the work of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, has a definitive, clear unambiguous, simple answer that can be expressed in two letters. No. This is a paradigm shift, they say. No, it's a radical flipping over. It is not a paradigm shift. It is a radical inversion of the civil rights movement. And these fucks claim the civil rights movement as though they are its new heroes and champions. They are literally rejecting it, explicitly rejecting it. And they claim it as though it's theirs. Like I said, it's galling. It's frustrating. It's enraging. And it's a lie. It's the most, probably the most effective lie that has ever been foisted, or in, in, at least in a hundred years, that has been foisted on the world. It is an insanely effective lie. And you say, no, a hundred years, you're, you're ignoring the Nazis, you're ignoring the Stalin, you're ignoring Stalin, you're ignoring Mao. Where do you think this is going if this isn't stopped? It's the same logic. It's the same logic as that. It's the same logic as all of that. It's got Hitler's race, Mao used race. It's got the same cultural revolution moves as Maoism has the same underpinnings. Where do you think this is going? And it has taken down not a society like Russia or torn, destroyed Germany between the world wars or peasant broken China. It has taken down the strongest liberal society in the world. This is one of the most consequential lies that has been told in at least a century, probably in human history. Unbelievable how effective it's been. This lie claims that critical race theory continues the noble work of the civil rights movement, a gem of liberal societies. 
something we should all be able to look at with pride as the um, hard-won victory of a nation of ideas, of a society built on ideas of equality, legal reasoning, that's rule of law, enlightenment rationalism, that we can rational, we can think our way to the right, uh, to, the, to the truths about the world and even to the right values about the world and the neutral principles of constitutional law that Frederick Douglass appealed to, that Sojourner Truth appealed to, that Martin Luther King appealed to when he said that this country wrote a promissory note that it has not yet made good on in the early 1960s. These people flip this thing over for their stupid revolution, and it's absolutely a disgusting lie.